Hey everyone, it's James Lindsay. This is the New Discourses podcast, and uh, today I want to talk about Bud Light, Anheuser-Busch, all of our corporations, Pride Month. Essentially what I want to talk about actually is the ESG cartel, the racketeering, I think a criminal racketeering scheme that's being run through ESG, but in particular with the um, so-called LGBTQ, and I'm going to try to strictly say so-called uh, because I don't want there to be, it's not even a good way to put this. I'm trying to think of a better way to put it. The correct way to put it is queer activism or queer theory activism. Uh, but the whole, that whole aspect of it, given that pride is coming up and it's going to be a wild ride, I want to kind of take an opportunity to break down what I think is the most important story in America that isn't getting talked about because we have been given an opportunity to unmask not to just talk about, but to actually show and to press the issue that the way that the corporate equality index and its related uh, the related phenomena, there are other equality indices put forth by what's called the human rights campaign, uh, actually work in tandem with ESG, its environmental, social, and governance scoring metrics for corporations, which they're all enthralled to. All it is is a social credit system for corporations, which is fully implemented, fully installed, fully active already. It is not in the West that we have a social credit system for individuals yet, but our corporations all do. And what I want to do is actually go through how all this works, the whole kind of picture of the ESG racket, and and then in particular talk about the, 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 the corporate equality index side of it so that we can understand what's going to happen during Pride, which by the time this comes out, that should be about the same time, and um, understand what's happened with Anheuser-Busch and these other corporations. Because I think what we need, let me put this out very clearly here at the beginning, what we need more than anything is a perspective shift. Well, okay, second to one other thing. What we need more than anything is we need... Um, our leaders, whether attorneys general, whether uh, state legislators, but more importantly also whether uh, House and even Senate Republicans calling these uh, corporate leaders to hearings. And we need to have governors, we need to have all kinds of state and federal officials who are wanting to fight the woke menace, who are not complicit in the woke menace, to start taking up uh, the charge to break this racket. We don't get out of any of this until the racketeering scheme is ended. You can talk about school choice as a miracle. You can think Christian nationalism or post-liberal, whatever, depending on national conservative, whatever you think these things, none of these are going to solve the problem if they don't have a tool that's directly geared toward breaking the ESG cartel. The ESG cartel is not going to get broken by a cultural movement. Let me just tell you right now, the ESG cartel is going to get broken by taking deliberate anti-racketeering steps and antitrust action. And since we don't control the Department of Justice right now, that's going to be challenging. It's going to come down to attorneys general, to congressional hearings that force the issue, etc. So the, that's the most important thing. The second most important thing is that people need to be uh, adopting a perspective shift. And it informs what I just said. The, what I just said about all of the stuff that needs to happen, the most important thing within that is that it has to come from a perspective shift. And that perspective shift has to be that most corporations, more than likely in this country, do not want to participate in the ESG racket. Now, I have very quietly whispered reasons to believe that this is true. Now, there are certainly some that are fully actively complicit. We should want to know who they are. And in my opinion, we should be taking steps, whether boycotts or otherwise, to bankrupt them. But there are a lot of corporations in this country that are wavering, aren't sure, that have walked themselves into a trap, feel like they had to, didn't really pay attention, and now they are where they are. And they are largely the victims of a criminal racket that uses, rather than guns and bombs and weapons and mob tactics kind of a century ago, setting your business on fire or whatever, that uses financial instruments instead of physical instruments in order to affect its racketeering. And when we look at it, when we look at ESG and these related metrics like the Corporate Equality Index, and I'm going to explain and unpack all of this, in that light, what we realize is that American growth, American prosperity, American productivity is massively hampered. And this is a huge national security threat on top of this. Massively hampered by this 
cartel operation that is intentionally trying to squash and contour and control American productivity and growth for a large number of reasons. But one of those reasons is to destroy the United States of America. Uh, why is it a security threat? How are we going to bring, say, essential manufacturing home if China were to decide to cut off the tap? So if we need essential manufacturing of essential goods, uh, maybe even something as basic as metals or energy, how are we going to activate that in the United States if it's had to have been shut down so that it can be ESG compliant? We're not going to. This is a massive national security risk. This is the most ridiculous thing. ESG is nothing short of the West committing suicide. It is the suicide of the West. Our elites are trying to, it's like, if you think of the elites, like the brains of our society, it's like our brain has become mentally ill and is trying to kill ourselves. That is actually what's going on with ESG. And that's how this cartel is working. I suspect that the players involved are not insane in that particular way. I suspect that they are insane in a different way. Uh, and in fact, that most of them have a massive scheme to profit um, on the far side of this, whether they're in league with the CCP, whether they've invested in China and India or whatever it happens to be. And now they're rigging the system to elevate those things while impoverishing the United States and the West, whatever their, their actual motivations are, whether it's just power, whether it's genuinely a bid for neo-communism. Uh, I think there are reasons to believe many or all of these things are true at once, as a matter of fact. But the fundamental reality is that we need a perspective shift that the majority of American corporations, if American startups, future American corporations, are beholden to a system. They are trapped by a cartel that is using racketeering methodology, and they need to be released from that. And the way that you break up a racket is that you start, imagine like a house of cards. Now, some of the cards are glued in place, but what you're going to do is start pulling out cards where you can, and eventually the thing will fall down. You want to haul, for example, the CEO of, or at least somebody in the corporate executive suite of Anheuser-Busch before Congress or attorneys general pressuring these people at the same time or independently, you want to have them in front of a congressional hearing asking hard questions. Why did you do this? Why are you go? Why is not, why did you put Dylan Mulvaney? Who cares? That's not the specific that matters. The question is, why is your corporate equality index so damn important? Why do you care about your ESG score so much more than the survival of your brand, than your customers? How is this possibly representing fiduciary responsibility unless fiduciary responsibility is captured by the market itself, the cartel market, I should say itself, not shareholder responsibility, not a free market, but a cartel that's rigged the system so that the only way your corporation can make money. What do your corporate bonuses look like for making these mistakes? Why are you getting gigantic bonuses? Why are so many industries giving gigantic bonuses to their corporate executives to implement this crap when it's actually killing their companies? These are the kinds of questions that need to be coming up. And what has to happen is the truth has to start coming out for why corporations are doing this. Now, some corporations are doing this very willingly. They've been promised monopoly status over some sector of the economy and the new oligopoly that's going to run everything on the other side of the transition to a new economy. Now, we always hear about the new sustainable and inclusive future of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and the United Nations. They've been promised a seat at the golden table if they play ball and get through this. Everybody else will not because it's going to be monopolies. There will either be crushing out of existence, buying out of existence, and merging out of existence into monopoly statuses for the, the most loyal on the far side of this. And so some of them are willing participants and they need to be held to account. This is trust activity. That's illegal. Uh, we need to be bringing back provisions out of the Sherman Antitrust Act, for example, or the Clayton Act or something, One of these, some of these acts, and hitting them hard. At the same time, we have... Uh, to, to, to dig into the, the corruption and the racketeering. Who, who's facilitating this? Why is this happening? And the only way that's going to happen is if we take advantage of this unique moment. So I'm going to break down kind of the Anheuser-Busch, Dylan Mulvaney story, and I am going to lean partly on uh, the work of a YouTube channel. I don't know who actually runs it, so my apologies, um, but the channel's called Midnight's Edge. They've done a couple of very good, uh, very comprehensive, very detailed, very graspable, very comprehensible videos explaining the Dylan Mulvaney, Anheuser-Busch, ESG, CEI racket. Uh, first, 
uh, in kind of two stages. Why this is such a thing? Why did why was Dylan Mulvaney a brand ambassador for Bud Light in the first place? What was the fallout? That was one video, and there'll be more, I'm sure. And a second video was following the news that's prompted me to make this podcast, which came out on either the 18th or 19th or 20th, one of these days of, of May, uh, I think the 18th of May, came out saying that um, the human rights campaign had actually delisted, had downlisted, I should say, not delisted, downlisted. They they reduced the corporate equality index score of Anheuser-Busch for not sufficiently standing with uh, Dylan Mulvaney. So I'm going to summarize... Um, kind of the whole thing, but I want to tell the story and I'm going to kind of go off of, of, of midnight edges analysis to make it a little bit simpler. So here's the rough idea. And I'm happy to say that I started banging the drum about the corporate equality index, maybe in last September, I learned about it in, in a conference I went to in Washington DC last September and immediately realized its relevance came up a couple more times when trying to get people to pay attention to it. Uh, and now we have the moment of opportunity to seize into force a lot of attention on it because it is one it's essentially like thinking like you know the mob has different guys they got jimmy the gun they got you know um billy the backbreaker you know whatever they got mean gene they got all the different guys and they do different things right and so the cei is like one of those it's like it is like jimmy the gun there are other tools as well but we have this one and so the way that the corporate equality index works and its relevance here so the story of Dylan Mulvaney, I think, is well known. Dylan Mulvaney is not a relevant character to this story. In fact, he's a prop. He's probably being used. There might be very sinister and nefarious reasons deeper than just what I'm about to present. I'm um, not going to get into those, but I've, I would suspect him as a potential candidate for what we might refer to as an Operation Trans Floyd um, event. Uh which, by the way, uh, to summarize very quickly, I don't really want to get into this. I would be very not surprised. That's the way I'll phrase this, that the one of the goals is to get Dylan Mulvaney so hated that he gets bullied so much online that he commits suicide. And then we talk about trans-suicidal ideation, suicidality, and suicides as the primary reason why all of the gender-affirming care, et cetera, is so necessary because now their big avatar that they propped up to fail failed. And I have very dark suspicions around that, but I can't prove any of it. I'm not claiming it. I would just keep an eye on it as a potential operation trans Floyd. If you know my lingo, I'm not going to break all that down. That's not what we're here for. But Dylan Mulvaney was obviously made a brand ambassador to uh, support uh, or to, to advertise for, for Bud Light and this kind of now famously horrific business decision. And we've seen the uh, marketing director for for the brand to come out and explain that the, she wanted to try to it doesn't mean anything she says if if we don't have you know kind of a deeper purpose behind what we're doing it's not just to try to increase sales of a beer or maintain customer base of a beer what matters she said it, the only way it means something is if we're pursuing some higher agenda like trying to make a more inclusive society more inclusive workplace so she's she's injected this kind of religious uh, ambition into her job, which PS is not in line with fiduciary responsibility at all. It is not Bud Light's interest to create meaningful blah, blah, blah. The shareholders, that is not their responsibility to shareholders is to give them heartwarming moments of social progress. The, the duty they have to their shareholders is to return a profit. And this is not what happened because People were very pissed about Dylan Mulvaney becoming the brand ambassador. I mean, very pissed. And the boycott was remarkably successful. We're talking, you know, definitely in the 10 figures. I don't know if it hit 11 figures in damage. Their price got, their, their stock value got de, it got downlisted. Um, they were then put between a rock and a hard place. Because here's how this works. Here's the part that Midnight Edge explains. There's other parts to the way ESG works. Because the reason behind this, and I immediately saw this, there was a little bit of attention. I ended up on a lot of shows over this. We, a lot of people started finally talking about it. When Dylan Mulvaney blew up as the brand ambassador and the Bud Light thing blew up, I said, listen, guys, do you not know why he's there? The reason is the corporate equality index score. And the corporate equality index score is everything for so many corporations. You do not have to be signed up for this with the human rights campaign, but 
some 2,000 some odd companies are or something like this. And there's a reason. Some almost 900 companies have a perfect score of 100 on their corporate equality index. And this might be the first time you've heard of the corporate equality index. You need to go look this up. It's so freaking central and important to why all of the crazy LGBT corporate stuff is happening. So the human rights campaign used to be a gay civil rights organization. As usually happens, anything that's a civil rights organization will get, if it wasn't created explicitly by, will get co-opted eventually by communists who are going to turn it to their purposes. And that's exactly what's happened with the HRC. I don't know its origin stories. I don't know who was involved. I'm not going to say whether it was good or bad in the beginning. It was very famous. It's that blue thing with the yellow equal sign that was for gay rights, equality which is a, not a communist program, but it could be used as a foil to get one further. But it started to take a lot of money from some big uh, nonprofit organizations like the Open Society Foundation around 2006, 7, 8, 9, something around there. I think 8 is the actual year, but I don't recall. $20, 30000000 million at a pop, something like that. The way this usually works, by the way, is they give you the money, no strings are attached or very few. And then when you build a bunch of stuff and you get in debt, they come along and it's kind of a debt scam that you have a bunch of employees you don't want to lay off. And if you want another big grant, you're going to have to make some changes a few years later for the next installment. That's usually the way this works. I don't know the details of this one. I just know that this grant was given. And so at any rate, the human rights campaign is now like, it's not about equality at all. It's all trans all the time. It's crazy. It's in fact legitimately gone off the woke deep end uh, into the social construction of gender, sex, sexuality, the whole universe. The, it's no longer LGBTQ at all. It's just Q. It's just Q. Not even T. It's not even normal trans for whatever that is. It is just queer activism in, in the sense of queer Marxism or queer Gnostic activism. No, no uh, differentiation anymore. That's all it is. It's, it is a agitating um, disrupting queer Marxist front group. That's all it is now. And so the human rights campaign since 2002 has been publishing this score called a corporate equality index. And it scores corporations that are signed up for a score. Certain things happen when you have a score. It's a proxy for your ESG score. It gets you, you know, pride of place or whatever in uh, colleges for recruiting. It gives you all kinds of things. College admissions officers are very selective along having good CEI scores and telling students um, that you're a good place to work. If you don't have one, they probably will not promote you for, you know, so the best allegedly best college is what it is these days, but the allegedly best um, employment uh, candidates are only going to find out about places that have a 100 CEI, for example, because of the corruption involved in this. So anyways, there are all these categories. You have to have a non-discriminatory workplace and all these kind of non-discriminatory policies. Some of these are actually probably totally legit, just completely legit. Who cares? But you always have to have some of the positive, good, and banal mixed into your activism, or people are going to see that it's just an extortion racket, which is what the corporate equality index is. It is the tool of an extortion racket. Remember, it is Jimmy the gun coming, saying that you have a nice corporation there, or actually you have a nice corporate line of credit there. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it. And so what happens is to get this score, you have to have all these, you know, kind of milquetoast things, non-discriminatory workplace, but then you also have to have kind of in a positive and affirming workplace. You have to take active steps to make the workplace even more inclusive and belonging. You have to have hi deliberate hiring drives and so on. But then there's another section in the scoring where it's about visibility and what they call corporate responsibility or social responsibility, corporate social responsibility. What you have to actually do is proactively promote the ideology in the public. You have to use your brand to promote the queer Marxist agenda. You have to do visibility campaigns like with Dylan Mulvaney. So the instant I saw Dylan Mulvaney with a brand ambassador for, first of all, not just Bud Light, but also Nike and like 30 other brands back to back to back to back, including, wasn't it Tampax too? The dude doesn't need tampons, brothers and sisters. Uh, he just doesn't. There's a really simple reason for that. Uh, when I saw that this was happening, I was like, oh, they've made him one of the things that they go around and say, he's something you should be hiring as a brand ambassador for visibility points on your CEI. And then there's a second, there's another section, a negative section on your CEI, where if you get in trouble or fall afoul of the activists anywhere, they can take points away up to 25 of your 100. And so 
there's a carrot stick model to the way that the CEI or corporate equality index scoring works. And so the, the, the basic deal for, for this is that it's not just that there's this list, like you've got to have this kind of hiring policy, you've got to have this kind of office policy, you have to have this kind of HR policy for dealing with conflict or hostile working environments, all of those kind of things that create sort of the um, twisted civil rights regime that biases things while not being on the wrong side of the law. Uh, so far, anyway, under the jur- bad jurisprudence of things like Griggs versus Duke Power and so on. But there are also specific lists of positive demands that are made. And often with the CEI, it is quite explicit that you have to do very activist things on behalf of HRC, Human Rights Campaign, queer Marxist agendas. You not Is it just putting things into your advertisements and your you know promos and whatever else to increase visibility? They may come along if you're an airline and say you need to give free airplane tickets to uh, activists who are going to fly to different pride events this summer. You need to, they might go to uh, any given corporation and say, here is a bill, the so-called don't say gay bill that they maligned in Florida. You're going to lobby against it and put money behind lobbying against it or else we're going to delist your CEI score. Here's this thing that has to do with Obergefell. You're going to lobby on behalf of this. You're going to lobby for the bills that we want, and you're going to lobby against the bills that we don't want, explicitly asking them to do that. And there's this list of year-by-year-by-year demands to satisfy that third category that you must participate in. In other words, they come with a new list of extortable racketeering devices and say, if you don't participate in these... It's going to be a shame to see what happens to you. And so corporations work really hard to keep their 100s to earn and keep, I should say, their 100 score in the corporate equality index. Now, before I go any further, because the next question is, I mean, you can see how this works. Why is Ford painting a truck with a rainbow? That's why. Why is probably very likely why? Why is Nike, Tampax, um, Anheuser-Busch, Bud Light, Coors, Miller... Why are all these big brands going into this, whether it's Dylan Mulvaney or some other huge pride campaign? By the way, by the time this comes out, you're going to be seeing this is going to be the operation of the summer is going to be to just core dump these uh, pride campaigns from large corporations because they want the American people to attack our own industries. That's hugely why. So last year was drag queens, and that's going to be a thing this year. This year is going to be heavy-duty corporate pride, and it's going to be to piss people off with these ad campaigns and so on. And the HRC and its CEI score is probably behind it. Now, before we go into how it actually works, I know I haven't told you how the ESG CEI scam works and gone into the Midnight's Edge analysis of liquidity and all of this. The thing you also need to know is this isn't just limited, believe it or not, limited is a strange word to use here, to corporations. There's a corporate equality index, but why is there so much of this stuff happening in healthcare, in hospitals, with all the gender-affirming care in particular? Well, they publish a healthcare equality index as well. And so if your hospital's not participating in sufficient amounts of gender-affirming, blah, 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 you're going to have a bad HEI. It's not just a corporate equality index. There's a healthcare equality index. You following me? So Aaron Sabarium at Free Beacon the Washington Free Beacon did a nice expose of the healthcare equality index and how that's actually driving decisions in the pharmaceutical industry, in the hospital industry, in the medical industry across the board that leans us into designing and, and declaring and accepting things that are actually in line with the queer Marxist agenda as dictated by the human rights campaign explicitly as standards of care and standard protocols. So this kind of Lysenkoist corruption in the queer dimension if I will, of, of medicine is largely driven, maybe not wholly driven, in fact, definitely not wholly driven, but largely driven, at least in the financial end of things, from their reliance on their healthcare equality index score as assigned by the human rights campaign. But we don't stop there. There's another one that's called the Municipal Equality Index that does this for cities and counties and other municipalities. So why does Miami have a gay police car painted up in a rainbow? Now you have an idea why. Because they're having to do things to promote visibility and inclusion and acceptance in their community. And these kinds of things are the things that are demanded. Now, I don't, I do know what happens with corporations if they don't participate in this. I don't know what happens with a municipality. I don't know what do they do. I don't know if they fund, I don't know why yet. 
cities and counties are sucked in by this. I don't know if there are campaigns against politicians that will be funded. I don't know what the what what that score does yet. We can look into it. There's also, as a fourth one, there may be more than this. I haven't found more, but there may be more. There's also what's called a state equality index, where they've rated all the states. And if you go look at this, you'll find that um, the states seem to be the least impacted entities, political or corporate or whatever entities, they are seemingly the least beholden to the HRC, which makes sense because they're gigantic and there's other political pressures coming on. So the extortion racket doesn't affect the states as well, but there are at least four of these equality indexes utilized by the HRC, the Human Rights Campaign, the Corporate Equality Index for Corporations, the Healthcare Equality Index for the healthcare industry and medical, uh, medical industry, the municipal equality index for municipalities and a state equality index to push all 50 states and and maybe other territories. So you have this idea of how this activism works. Um, Why does it work? Why do these corporations and hospitals in particular, municipalities, and, and I told you, I don't know the answer for the municipalities. Hopefully somebody will dredge that up because all of this needs to be on, this needs to be one of the biggest conversations that's happening because if we stop this extortion racket, we stop basically woke. We stop the sustainable development goals. We stop the whole program. It all comes down to stopping ESG. Well, it turns out these equality indices are a gigantic part of how ESG works. And ESG is super important. So all of this corporate equality index stuff is the LGBTQ plus Q hot dog, whatever dimension of DEI and D, at the corporate level. And DEI is the largest share of the S in ESG. So it turns out that the ESG rating entities, which are gigantic financial institutions, banks, essentially. Index fund managers. These gigantic financial institutions do, and and the SEC now, the uh, governments are involved in this as well now, in the public-private partnership corruption. We used to call that fascism, but they came up with a new name for it, so everybody's confused. And of course, public-private partnerships didn't start out as explicit fascism. They were co-opted. Well, the thing is that these major financial institutions use things like your corporate equality index as proxy metrics to determine your ESG score. How are they going to know how your corporation is behaving with regard to queer inclusivity, which is queer Marxist activism under a cutesy name? Well, only one possible way. Well, I guess there are a few ways, but the easiest way is, oh my God, we'll just outsource it to the human rights campaign and some of these other nonprofit organizations that will create scoring metrics that say how good you are on it. And they're considered authoritative. So corporations take the the human rights campaign, which why in the hell should they care what the human rights campaign says? So they can put a sticker on their website and some whatever. No, that's only worth so much. And I can tell you it's not worth as much as Bud Light lost by propping up Dylan Mulvaney, it's not that. It's because the ESG rating agencies use it as a crucial measurement for how they do this. And if we, by the way, destroy the corporate equality index as the metric, they will find another one. ESG is the thing that has to be taken down. This is a way through the door. That's what I want to talk about. So here's what happens. I'm just going to give the story, summarize the two videos that I watched from Midnight's Edge and give you guys a sense of this. And so the the short, short version of this is... And there are, there are multiple dimensions of how ESG works, and I want to go through them all, but I want to give you the one that Midnight, Midnight's Edge summarizes first. It's not comprehensive, actually. It's very, very good. But the argument that he gives is that corporations have kind of two huge sets of pressures on them at all times. One is their long-term viability as a corporation due to being able to pull in long-term revenue from a stable or growing or uh, renewing customer base. The second, and that's what people are thinking about when they think about the market. The second, though, is in reality, this isn't how corporations do a lot of their business. The way they do a lot of their business in reality is that they put out huge capital outlays. Maybe they're going to make 200 million gallons of beer, you know, in this three month period of the year when the temperatures are the most ideal to make beer at the best profit and it's cheaper to store it than it is to, you know, something like this. So they have to, I, I'm not saying that's how they make beer. I'm just giving a hypothetical example, right? There's, 
different reasons. Maybe they're going to build a whole new factory. Maybe they're going to buy a whole new fleet of trucks, whatever it happens. Maybe they're going to run a gigantic marketing campaign and have to buy millions upon millions of dollars of new materials right now. Well, it turns out the bill for those things comes sooner or later. Now, the corporation on paper is going to be able to pay for this no problem, but they're going to finance it. So if I'm somebody and I make a contract with, say, Bud Light, and I'm going to make advertising materials for them, or I'm going to provide them with hops in bulk, because maybe hops is only harvested at certain times of year, and they're going to pay me $5 million. Well, they have to have $5 million to pay me when I complete the delivery. And if I'm not offering them a financing op uh, option, which I might not do, knowing how these things actually work, they can turn to a bank and say, look, we're projected to make $28 million profit. We owe $5 million. Give us a line of credit so we can go ahead and pay our, our, our you know, vendor here. And we're going to come or our supplier and we're going to come back and we'll pay you back and you'll get profit because you're a bank and blah, 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 you know, interest. And so these lines of credit are actually crucial in short-term financing of corporations, customers, medium and long-term, lines of liquid credit, liquidity, crucial for short-term. So you see these two kind of things. So what actually goes on with the this one particular dimension, one thing that ESG does will determine your access and your interest rates involved to short-term liquid credit. Your line of credit depends in terms of how much it's going to cost you, whether or not you can access it at all, because it's a social credit system. It's like if you, the social credit score was bad and you were in China, they would turn your bank account off. This is the same thing. We're going to turn off your access to liquid credit. You'll have no line of credit if you're ESG or limited uh, line of credit or an expensive line of credit. What different ways to manipulate the situation if you um, don't have a perfect ESG score. So the corporations are massively incentivized to have a perfect ESG score because otherwise they might have, say, 20 or $30 million in outlays in the short term that they don't have money in the bank to cover, but they know they're going to recoup over the year. So they don't exactly go um, bankrupt. They go insolvent. Uh, they hit a liquidity crisis and the ESG scores can force them to participate to avoid liquidity crises. That's what's really, this is all kind of a little more financially savvy. And if I've got some of the details wrong, I'm sorry, it's outside. I'm not a finance guy. I just kind of have a general grasp of what's going on. And this liquidity thing is a the line of credit access through ESG is a key aspect of how it works. This shouldn't be legal to manipulate you that way. There should not be a social credit system limiting the way that our corporations behave or forcing our corporations to behave according to the dictates of the human rights campaign or some any other nonprofit that wants to come extort them so that they can't gain access to their to their line of credit unless they behave. This is a massive violation that should be illegal. And when this gets exposed, and this is why the Dylan Mulvaney story turns out and Bud Light story turns out to be so helpful. It is the moment. The moment is here to expose what's going on and get all of these nitty-gritty details. But this forces the corporations to play ball. So what happens with with Bud Light is they know their customers don't want this or they learned it very quickly. And so they have the risk of losing medium and long-term value or even ability to survive as a corporation because of their customer base. But secondly, they have, or as a brand, because technically they're not a corporation anymore, they're owned by Bud Light's owned by Anheuser-Busch and Anheuser-Busch is owned by a large multinational headquartered in Belgium called InBev uh, or something like that something like that, some gigantic, massive corporate conglomerate that's probably going to be one of the contenders to be the monopoly on the far side of the uh, ESG rainbow, which, by the way, this is extortion. This is not okay. This is a giant corporate Ponzi scheme run through the banks. This has to be exposed and busted up. But the thing is, they have to think about their customers, of course, but they don't have to think about their customers in the short term. And in fact, they're in a bad place because they have to think about their line of credit constantly in the near term. And this is a place where they've become vulnerable and ESG steps in and creates these threats of liquidity crises, which could destroy the company. They can't pay their bills. They're going to have to file bankruptcy. All kinds of bad things are going to happen. Then they can get credit delisted further. Their stock goes bad. All kinds of terrible things. Um, there are lots of other aspects to this too, but this is one of the reasons why corporations like Bud Light and Ford and Disney and everybody else gives a damn about their 
corporate equality index. This is one of the reasons why the healthcare corp industry cares so much about its healthcare equality index score, because it becomes a proxy to their ESG score, and their ESG score controls very important things. Because ESG affects not only public corporations, but also private corporations and healthcare and every other thing in the universe. Um, it's, it's, its effect, however, on public corporations is, is a much greater effect. But these mechanisms are, are powerful and they come from multiple angles at once. And ESG activists, mostly working in these, these nonprofits, these NGOs, these entities, these banks, these financial institutions, and within the corporations themselves, they've been embedded within the corporations themselves because if you don't hire them, your G score for your ESG goes down, right? So you have to have good governance. That's G. So you have to hire these activists into your corporation, pay them very, very handsomely to be there. And uh, if you don't, then they're going to uh, delist you or downgrade you in terms of your ESG and all of these same problems hit you. So one of the things that I just mentioned and explained is the access to credit lines, uh, short-term liquidity. That is what Midnight's Edge covered and it is absolutely crucial, but it also affects your access to investment capital. So imagine that you're a CEO of a private startup corporation. So we're not talking about Bud Light now or something long established. You're a startup. You might not need credit now, but you probably do. You probably need a lot of money to be uh, to get to get off the ground. I've heard in the tech industry, if you're not talking about an, an initial investment of in the billions, you're probably not going anywhere. So you've got to go like scrape that together. And the only people that they'll give this kind of money to most of the time are highly ESG compliant. And the reason is because they know that your corporation's not going to, your startup isn't going to go very far once it gets out into the universe where ESG runs the market. So why dump a bunch of money into a startup that's going to get crushed by the mob? You can only give smart money to things that won't get crushed by the mob. And so they know that this line of credit game is going to hit you eventually later. So um, the other thing is that a lot of these startups end up selling themselves to some acquisition uh, buyout. So, you know, you invent a cool new tech, tech product, Google buys you. You get to a certain size, Google buys you. Okay, so, so venture capitalists and large financial organizations are going to send the message to your company that um, fewer and fewer people are going to be interested in buying. Just like there'll be fewer students willing to come work for you when they graduate because your CEI is bad because they've been brainwashed not to do that and the schools won't advertise you and won't put you, uh, give you, not even just pride a place, they won't give you any place unless you have 100 CEI on campus. They won't recommend you to anybody. Same thing, venture capitalists, large financial organizations are sending also a message that, by the way, your, your corporation if it can survive in the environment and in this, the, the high seas of the uh, of of the economy that's run by the ESG pirates, if it can even survive on its own, nobody's going to buy it. Nobody's going to be interested in buying it unless you have these ESG policies in place. The big boys are already ESG compliant. They're already complicit, whether they want to be or not. So nobody's going to participate because they're caught up in the 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 acquisitors are already caught up in the racket, right? So. It might or might not be true that you you can succeed, but it creates a substantial reason for you to believe that it's a massive risk not to be ESG compliant, besides the fact that you're not... And so we're not talking just about your own company. I'm talking about the venture capitalists and so on who are going to invest in your company. Uh, if you're not compliant, you're kind of a bad risk. And who wants to take those risks? Um, especially if you spent you know, 20, 15, 10... 20, 50, whatever years building up a fortune or building out an idea and building out and designing a company. And one of these days you want to retire, your your company is, even if it's successful, you can't go anywhere. Um, you're, you're, you've jeopardized all your chances by not playing the game. And they know that. There's also the ever-present threat that they'll bring all these kind of weird civil rights lawsuits. And it doesn't really matter if you win them. They're expensive. They're a pain in the ass. They get super bad PR. We know how the, they all know how the corporate press is going to treat them. You know, XYZ Corporation has lawsuit for, you know, anti-LGBT or racist, blah, blah, blah. Um, you can have, you'll have somebody like Jesse Jackson on TV, like you did with Google saying you're not hiring enough diverse employees in a sense, mafia stuff. So it'd be a terrible shame if there are these lawsuits came and something happened to your company. And ESG is all baked through the media, baked through all of these other entities that are going to back that up and at least create the public perception, if not the problem with litigation. But our civil rights law is all kind of cooked with this too. 
and the SEC is now involved. So that's a problem. Then you have the executives themselves, and we haven't even gotten to the really gnarly problems with the way ESG works as a cartel, but the executives, if you're a corporate executive, you're not a normal dude anymore, right? Like It's not like you just get pissed and quit your job and go get another job. You don't get mad and walk out of Starbucks and go get a job over at Chick-fil-A. This isn't what's going to happen to you. You're If you're a C-suite executive, especially up in Fortune 500 territory, these big corporations, the kind of big, rich, swinging something or another's of, of the corporate environment, they all know each other. They're all kind of, they're all friends with each other. Lots of them, maybe they don't like each other sometimes, but they go on retreats together. They learn best practices together, all of this. Um, and when they resign, they're, 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 they, you don't go apply for another job. You're tapped for a position where you've already kind of been headhunted and eyeballed and you're going to get moved around. Um, it, it can get very incestuous. Execs hire each other within different firms and related industries. And if you are seen as a reputational liability or somebody who's not going to play ball or somebody who is accused of something bad like sexual harassment or racism or sexism or transphobia or whatever, which can be signaled by you having a bad CEI score or ESG score, um, you've got to, your corporate career depends on keeping yourself squeaky clean with whatever the fads are and the, the culture is within that universe. So those are some heavy-duty pressures that are put onto you to play the ESG game. Plus, they've cooked... I don't exactly know how this works, but I, you see the story again and again and again come out in the news that corporate executives are giving themselves gigantic bonuses for being ESG compliant, and they lose bonuses for not being that. So if you make your corporation more inclusive, for some reason, you might get like a giant 30% bonus. The executives are, through some mechanism or another, that would be fun to find out what that is, to get that laid out on the table, able to give themselves large bonuses for this. And so that's a reason. I mentioned before that the kind of the way the ESG racket works, ESG was created, by the way, at the United Nations in 2003 by a man named Frank, no, James, sorry, James Frank Gifford, somebody else, James Gifford. And the goal of the ESG from its inception was to take investment capital, passive investment capital, pensions, retirement funds, long-term IRA investments, all of these things that get dumped into mutual funds and so on, pension funds and so on. And to take all that reservoir of money, which is trillions and trillions of dollars, many trillions of dollars. I've heard estimates that it's 40% of the entire S&P 500, uh, that it's, you know, sometimes I've heard numbers that range from 6 to $20 trillion, numbers that range from 25 to 50% of the global capital uh, that's available. That's all under management in these gigantic reservoirs of long-term investment. And the goal from Gifford and the United Nations, where he cooked it up, was to figure out how to take all of that money, instead of investing it for the genuine long-term strategy of, of best rate of return for these investments, it was to do impact investing along the way. And they retrofitted this terrible explanation that's called ESG now that explained that if companies are environmentally responsible, socially responsible, and have good governing best practices, they have the highest likelihood of having a good long-term rate of return. They might be volatile or whatever in the short term, but the companies that have the best long-term rate of return are going to be the ones that have the best environmental, social, and governance policies in place. And those, of course, if they're measurable, they're corruptible. They were very rapidly corrupted. So the S doesn't mean social corporate responsibility. It means woke. Uh, e doesn't mean environ sound environmental policy. It means zero emissions, net zero environmental climate change scam. That's all it means. And it, it means whatever they say it means, actually, in both cases. Governance does include some actual best practices, but it doesn't have to. It includes other things like hiring these commissars, ESG managers, DEI officers, um, sustainability officers, to make sure that the political ideology is being enforced and implemented. It also requires you, and this is a very key thing, to hire kind of hand-picked people for the corporate board. Not just the C-suite, but the corporate board behind it, the board of directors, is largely made up through shareholder voting. Well, it turns out that these huge capital investors have under management lots and lots and lots and lots of money so that they, by proxy, own maybe 30, 20, 30, 40, plus percent of the shares 
of a lot of very large corporations. So they have a lot of say. They also can just make it a requirement for your G-score. Your board has to have at least one woman, at least one LGBTQ, at least one racial minority. And if you don't have these things, and by the way, here's a list of recommendations for who they should be, and maybe just hire this person. And if, if you don't have those, then we're going to not give you a good G-score on your, on your governance. That's why these things are happening. But if that doesn't work, they might have 40% of the votes for determining who the next board member is. So they can leverage that in as well. That also gives them having that much control over that many. Now, notice they don't own these assets. Other people own these assets, but they're managing them. So they own them by proxy. It's proxy ownership of large percentages of the shares of most of the companies on the Fortune 500. Actually, it literally is about 40% of the S&P 500 is under management by proxy ownership of these people. BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, maybe Goldman Sachs, some of these largest investment firms, BlackRock and Vanguard kind of being the the big two. I think when we add in State Street, we're getting to that 40% number, the three, three biggest. So if you own 40% of, or, or managing proxy own 40% of a company's stock, it doesn't matter really how you own it. You can threaten not just to delist it in terms of ESG, you can actually threaten to sell large amounts of it. They won't always do this because it drops the price and they can play games, but the individuals involved can then buy some of those shares at a discount, of course. So there's lots of uh, insider trading corruption opportunities for the architects of this as well. But at the same time, what they can do is they can they can threaten to crater the stock value while delisting you at the same time or downlisting you at the same time, creating a crisis in your stock value that's going to get all kinds of people doubting and maybe cause a run off of your stock and damage your financial prospects and your access to everything and create a downward spiral and in a sense become Jimmy the Gun and whack a, com- a corporation the size of Coca-Cola. That's not easily done, but they've manipulated the investment capital market, the pension funds, to be able to create that power. And um, this is a very dangerous thing. Of course, that also having this level of power gives you lots of access to talking to governments like the United States government, which allegedly said that BlackRock constituted an informal fourth branch of our government um, some years ago. Larry Fink at the CEO, always kind of present there. these are the ways that this all works. Now, Larry Fink very famously said that, um, and he's, of course, on the executive board of the World Economic Forum as well, but Larry Fink famously said that markets don't like freedom. They like they like uh, control. They want coerced command economies. And so that's the direction. That's how he thinks about markets. That's how he thinks about um, what he's doing with with con- getting involved with government, getting involved with these funds to control the behaviors of, to force, he said, the behaviors of the entities involved. And so this is kind of the game. So now let's re- that's why they care about this. this. The point is that the ESG cartel has tremendous power over the corporations. They can lay out a social credit score called their ESG score. They can use things like the corporate equality index as a proxy for scoring part of that for their part of their S scoring or even depending on who they have to hire or whatever, part of their G scoring. And then they can they can use it so to, to leverage the companies in the racketeering cartel scam. Okay, so this is why the corporations care that much. Then the liquidity thing is not a small deal. And this is where we come back to the Dylan Mulvaney story and why this is a moment. And so if you've been kind of asleep and you did kind of already knew all this or whatever, or if you're going to send a piece to your lawmakers and they kind of already know this, or an attorney general, this is the part you clip and send. Starting now, the summary of the story real quick, Bud Light as Anheuser-Busch as InBev brings in for probably for raising corporate equality index scoring purposes and ESG scoring purposes brings in Dylan Mulvaney as a brand ambassador. People become angry, gigantic boycott, billions of dollars lost, big problem, brand irreparably damaged in all for all intents and purposes. Customers demanding an apology. Now, here's what happened. They want an apology, a full... The the customers are not coming back, probably some of them ever, but a lot of them won't consider it until after there's a full public apology for for this whole debacle, an explanation for the whole debacle, and a thoroughgoing public distancing from Dylan Mulvaney and the entire ad campaign and everybody associated with it being fired, etc., these kind of things. But... Bud Light or Anheuser-Busch can't do that because if they do, then their ESG score will drop, their 
all of these other mechanisms will come into play. They may have board members that are already sympathetic who won't let it happen anyway. The CEO's bonus probably depends on it, so it's not going to happen anyway. These are corruptions, by the way. But also, their access to a line of credit is going to be threatened or become much more expensive, maybe even cut off, because that's how social credit systems work. Bad social credit score, no line of credit, no, no access to your money. And so this becomes a gigantic problem. So they can't back off, but they can't not back off. And this is the double bind. Midnight's Edge explained it very well, if you've been keeping up. And so they, of course, waffled and did the middle, and nobody's happy. Customers were not satisfied with this explanation, and neither were the ESG rating entities. And as a matter of fact, the human rights campaign came out on the 18th or 19th, whatever it was of May, and said, listen, Anheuser-Busch missed a key opportunity to stand up for Dylan Mulvaney, so we have downlisted, that we have taken CEI points away. They no longer have a 100 CEI score, we've taken their points away. They have now signaled, they've put put Anheuser-Busch on notice, if you will. They've now signaled to Anheuser-Busch and every other corporation, F-A-F-O, fuck around and find out what the mafia is going to do to you if you don't play ball exactly the way we say. So Bud Light had to choose between completely alienating its customer base and going out of business or pissing off the, the mob racketeering group and probably hitting a, a bankruptcy crisis and maybe going out of business. And they chose to somehow try to do both at the same time. And they managed in the process of trying to not lose too many customers that they need for long term, medium and long term success. They managed to piss off the uh, CEI scoring entity. The human rights campaign got downgraded, lost their perfect score. They're going to get all the repercussions of that. And they're going to work so hard to make sure it doesn't happen again to recover those points now unless they defect, which if we play their cards right, we could get them to defect. And that's the crucial part of the story, and that's why it forces a perspective shift. The crucial part of the story is that this series of events that just happened because of the Bud Light Dylan Mulvaney debacle has given clear virtually incontrovertible proof that what we're dealing with is a racketeering social credit score system on our corporations, which means, and this is a perspective shift, our corporations are not all necessarily screwing us over. They are in practice, but that doesn't mean they want to. There are a lot of reasons why people are caught up in this ESG or corporations are caught up in this ESG um, situation now. Some of them are willing participants. They're eager participants. They've been promised and see the see the prize, which is to become a monopoly on the far side of the of the economic transition to the new economy of sustainable and inclusive future, or whatever this looks like, the neo-communist enviro-fascist future that the ESG score, sustainable development goals, agenda 2030, as it's called, is 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 demanding. So they're complicit. Some corporations walked in and now they can't get out. Some corporations like these venture capital based startups or whatever are just trying to get a place, an apartment on the block. I want you to go and actually think about that. There's a block say in New York city, it's 1992 and it's the dangerous times. There's a block and it's actually run by the mob. Maybe we should go back to like 1932. And there's a block in New York City, Lower East Side or whatever, a couple blocks. And they are actually hustled by the mob. And you got your Italian restaurant or you got your apartment or whatever. And, you know, it's a fine restaurant you have here. It would be a shame if something happened to it. Most of the people who live on the block are going to act in concert with what the mafia says, but they aren't part of the mafia. They are victims of the mafia. They fear for their lives every day. And they're caught between, maybe it's the mafia and the police, maybe it's whatever. We'll say that it's two kind of powers. Your boycott power against Bud Light forced this, but it's kind of like the copper. And over here you have the mafia, which is the ESG cartel. Okay, so you have these two. And the typical corporation is a victim of this. And of course they're going to do what the mob says because the cops aren't providing them with any assurance of protection. Now, I'm not saying what your average consumer should do. I've heard somebody, several people say, if 
Anheuser-Busch came out and came fully clean, testified before Congress, et cetera, and said, we were forced to do this. Here's how it works. And basically started the racketeering busting up scam. They would openly start buying the beer, supporting the company, et cetera, and they could get their long-term customers back. I don't think all of them will come back, but it would be a big difference if this were to actually come out openly in the public. A lot of corporations are going to find a lot more support than they think at this moment if this racket starts getting broken up. We were forced into it. We were forced into it. We don't want to do it. We have the receipts. Here's how we can prove it. Here's how it works. Here's what we were promised. Here's what we were threatened with. Here's why we participate and start to get this whole scam out into the open so that probably prosecution, but certainly whatever racketeering, busting up cartel, anti-cartel, antitrust activity can start to come to the surface and take care of the problem, which is what's actually got to happen. So this is that moment. Because by um, forcing Bud Light to do something, we'll assume that they were forced to. Maybe even hiring that marketing manager, who was a disaster, and whoever many else on their team. Because their G-score depends on those hires, by the way. Their G-score depends on those hires. And so does their CEI, if those people fall anywhere in the so-called pantheon of LGBTQ plus IA gods. Okay, so... If they were forced to do this thing, this thing that was massively harmful, clearly violated fiduciary responsibility. This is a very irresponsible act, except it wasn't because they were forced to do so by a cartel. And then the cartel punished them for trying to do the best that they could with the sticky situation that it put them in. You have all you need to go on the attack and start asking all the questions that expose this is cartel behavior. The opportunity is here. It is now. It's visible the whole story is there. Any corporation that wants to start stepping up and coming clean, corporate executives in any of these places that have hired some of these people who have made these campaigns, and let me tell you yet again, as you will see by the time this is coming out, pride being what it's going to be this year, we're going to see a lot of them. We're going to see a lot of angry consumers. We're going to see a lot of angry Americans and Westerners pissed off, not understanding why their brands are doing this. And I'm telling you, some of the brands, and I, I can't name any because I don't know which ones, are very willing participants. Some of them are kind of low information going along people, but a lot of them are very nervous. They're doubting and they understand that they're, cart they're trapped by a cartel and they maybe have thought that all along and they need a way out. What we need to be doing, and I've been saying this for about a year now, is we need to start figuring out ways to architect, whether it's through working with attorneys general, whether it's through working with lawmakers, whether it's through congressional hearings, we need to start architecting a way to create a protection for the corporations that are going to come clean on this. This includes having public awareness campaigns of how the ESG racket works, which is the main reason I'm recording this podcast for most normal people out there. So that you realize that if these corporations that come out and start busting up the racket, whatever they are, they probably deserve our support. They are not cowards in most cases because being a coward against the mob is kind of what you have to do. I get it. It'd be great if they were braver and would stand up. That's not real in, in this kind of an environment. We operate in an ESG cartel market, not a free market. If you are applying the demands and pressures of a free market and expecting people to act within it when they're not in it, you're not going to get that. Now, this isn't a hopeless situation. There is very likely criminal activity at the bottom of this or something that can be easily classified as criminal activity or some of both. And this actually is the kind of thing that can be stopped by people who want to stop it, who are, the, who, who are in the positions of power. Uh, that have the ability to stop it. And again, congressional hearings, attorney general action, et cetera, is a good place to start. But it's also imperative for us average folk out there to realize if, say, Bud Light were to strike out and they're going to have to do some work, but you know, make it clear that they're trying to overthrow this racket and take in their last chance, we should probably support them. Um, we need that perspective shift. And that perspective shift, again, is very, very simple and straightforward. Our corporations, thus American productivity, American prosperity, the future of America and our economy 
is all being held hostage by a, I think, criminal racketeering scam that is operated not through weapons, but through financial instruments. There might be other real blackmails and real um, threats against body or person or whatever involved as well that are certainly already criminal. And it'd be interesting if those were to make their way out. Of course, protection is necessary. Having a complicit federal government doesn't make this any easier. What can you do with a complicit federal government? Well, obviously, the more exposure there is, the more pressure there is for the government to do it, and the more illegitimate everything looks when they don't. So that's still got value to press and press and press and press in that direction and not stop pressing in that direction. But this perspective shift that's offered to us by the actions of the Corporate Equality Index, or the Human Rights Campaign and its Corporate Equality Index with regard to the Bud Light saga involving Dylan Mulvaney. And in fact, the key point being that they downlisted their score, they pulled their score, they dropped their score, and thus downlisted their ESG rating as their stock is also stock uh, security or whatever it's called. I don't know. I'm not a finance guy. Their, the, 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 the value of their stock has also been downlisted. Their quality of their stock has been downlisted because of the damage done by the boycott. What we find uh, is though, that's the, the part that's relevant. The part, and I'm talking about it like an idiot because I'm not into stocks and finance and all that. You, if you know, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know, I don't know either. So, but you know that I'm right in general, even if I'm not right in the details, that the details are not what matter for communicating the concept. They're what matter for working at the nitty gritties. What matters most is that the whole Dylan Mulvaney saga proves that there is racketeering behavior going on and that our perspective has to shift to that of liberating, if you might dare use that word, but actually freeing up opening up, restoring American productivity and prosperity and the American free market from the cartel. This event, this series of events with Bud Light, including the boycott, so pat yourselves on the back if you participated. More boycotts might help in other corporations. They probably will sometimes and not other times. They're not the main thing. The boycott succeeded. The boycott it revealed that we are dealing with cartel racketeering behavior that needs to get stopped. Again, antitrust, fiduciary responsibility. We see why corporations are failing and, and just have failed fiduciary responsibility. In other words, now the corporation can be sued and the buck can be passed. And so there's there's an oper, there, are, there are operations that can now start to take place. So we must seize this moment. We must talk more about the corporate equality index, healthcare equality index, um, municipal equality index, state equality index. That's just the LGBTQ plus hot dog emoji domain of this. There are other domains of this as well. There's going to be these for race. There are going to be these for all manner, several of them, I'm sure. All kinds of equality indices that run the entire grifty social justice operation on our corporations and railroad them into participating. They're going to be environmental uh, activist organizations that are doing the same thing. Anything We start figuring out where these operative scores are that tie back to the ESG score, and we start to see how illegitimate ESG is and how the whole cartel works, and then we can start dismantling it. And we get we, we, we need to free up our companies. We free a few companies or get some companies willing to start trying to free themselves and talk, and we start changing the entire landscape fast. So big perspective shift. Our corporations are held hostage. Not all of them, and we don't know for sure which ones, but the ones that are held hostage deserve our help the way we would help hostages of a mob or a mafia or a cartel. And that's what I wanted to communicate about ESG, how it works. I also, by the way, so one last takeaway, if you've listened all the way through this, if you're not talking about these equality indices and whatever the looking for what these other scores are in other domains, we're all missing the point. We must, when we see this corporate behavior, we should immediately be saying corporate equality index. We should immediately be bringing the tool to the surface so that people can see it. That thing should be the, if you were mad about CRT two or three years ago, and maybe you're still mad and it became like the big enemy, another real big enemy right now should be these corporate equality index, healthcare equality index, blah, 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 all tied back to ESG scoring. And so put that in your head. So when you see these events, you start wondering, how are they, and instead of why is Ford screwing America over, the question might be, why as a matter of fact, and maybe Ford is bad, I don't know, but why, well, let's assume it's not. Why is Ford Motor Company screwing America over is the, the reaction that they want out of you. But the reaction you should be having is who's forcing 
Ford to do this. Ford wouldn't do this. Who's forcing them to do this? And what do we do about it? How do we, well, how do we help protect Ford? Or I'm not even going to say the D one in Florida because, and California, because we don't trust them that much. Um, but it, it rhymes with uh, Pisney. Um, I don't know about that one, but Anheuser-Busch, etc. these kind of solidly American brands, why are they doing this? It needs to come to the to, to come to the surface. Is it the CCP? Is it just the ESG? Is it some of both? What's going on? So put that at the front of our thought when we see these things happen, and we're going to see so much of it during Pride. I can virtually guarantee it. So just have that in the in the back of your head. Every time you see it, repeat it. People don't understand stuff until you repeat it again and again and again. And a lot of people repeat it. And a lot of articles start coming out. And CEI needs to become, or Corporate Equality Index need to be, and ESG need to be the new things that every time you see this corporate woke behavior or environmental nonsense behavior, you say, this is why, and we need to get our corporations out of the scam. <laughs>